Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Imran Khan, co-founder and CEO of Embark, a leading organization in the movement for experiential learning. Imran spent the last 12 years of his career connecting students, teachers, and schools to learning beyond the classroom, first as a teacher on the south side of Chicago, then with Embark. Embark has been recognized by the UChicago Consortium as one of the best at designing developmental experiences across the country. Two years ago, Imran received a highly regarded Ashoka Fellowship, and he is an advisor to the MacArthur Foundation, the Workforce Funders Alliance, the Equitable Learning and Development Project, and most recently, the Education Transition Committee of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Today, Embark has expanded to serve more than 2,000 students across 20 Chicago public schools and has increased successful post-secondary outcomes for students by 30%. It leads 12,000 experiences a year bringing people together across economic, geographic, racial, and political differences. I am excited to share this conversation with everybody today. I have known Imran for many years now. I had the opportunity to serve as the chair of Embark's auxiliary board for a number of years uh, and lead a lot of experiential fundraising efforts. And so I have really had a front row seat to the work that Embark is doing and, and the model and how it impacts the students that they serve, but more than just impacting the students that they serve, it it really impacts everybody that's involved with it, from the students to the staff to the volunteers and to to anyone that interacts with the students. And I think that is the power of experiential learning, experiential education, experiential learning. And in this conversation, Imran shares both what Embark does and how they do it, but also really just conceptually how to build experiential education. And whether you're a teacher, an entrepreneur, an HR professional, someone in training and development, or really just somebody trying to develop yourself, we all learn best through our experiences. And and Imran gives a masterclass in this conversation in how to build meaningful experiences that really have a long-lasting impact and long-lasting growth. And so I'm excited to share this with everybody. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Without further ado, here is Imran Khan. And we're live. Imran, I have been excited for this conversation because I have brought up Embark several times on the podcast. And I thought, hey, if I talk about it that much, I should probably just get them on the line and do the interview. So excited to have you on. Obviously, I'm very familiar with Embark, but it'll be fun to like dive in a little bit more into some of the inner workings and, and your mindset and, and how you've built the thing you've built and, and do the work that you do. So this is going to be fun. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll be, uh, I'm a fan of yours and you've been so good to so many of our young people. So uh, anytime you call, I'll be there. <laughs> I appreciate it. So I wanted to start out just to sort of level set, if you could pitch Embark and explain the program to listeners. Everybody knows that the way you learn is by doing in relationship with other people. We have a school system that doesn't understand that. And more importantly, it is doing a lot of damage in many ways to young people of color because of the way we think about seat time, because of how little we understand about all of the uh, trauma that young people bring, because of the extra support and systems that young people of color need. What Embark does is provide schools with a comprehensive set of tools so that they can transform how they teach and how students learn. We make sure that young people are learning outside of the classroom with real world experiences, but in the classroom as well, teachers are trained on how to implement social emotional learning, how to implement relational practices, and how to build a really strong culture and climate. So one way to think about it is 
you go to a school, young people sit at a classroom and a desk all day, uh, and they do that for 14, 16, 17 years of their life. If you go to a school that Embark has been working with and supporting, young people are for four years of their high school career are constantly learning with businesses, restaurants, other cultural institutions, other community leaders in their own neighborhood. Um, they are working with teachers who are focusing on building real relationships with their young people and understanding how their teaching can facilitate the true seeing of the young people in front of them and giving them the tools so that young people can have the kind of learning practices that build skills like belonging, self-efficacy, how to deal with conflict, and then how to learn leadership skills. So we do a comprehensive thing. I think a lot of times people think about Embark as experiential learning. It is, but it's almost a misnomer because we provide a whole suite of tools for a public school to convert how they teach. I love that. Thank you. And what's the origin story? I know you're probably sick of telling this because I've heard you tell it a dozen times just in my presence. I'm sure you've told it hundreds and hundreds of times, but would you just explain the origin story of how you even came up with the idea to put this together? So the origin story of Embark kind of goes back a little bit to my own experience. I'm an immigrant kid, first generation. I was born in the United States. I was born and raised in Chicago. I had a lot of challenges growing up. We didn't have very much. We ate from food pantries and Mm. found our furniture on the street a couple of times and faced some home insecurity. And as I got older, I decided that I was going to follow in my mom's footsteps and do something to help the world. You know, she was a nurse. She constantly brought people to live in our home who were women who were victims of domestic abuse. And she brought all those people into our houses. And I remember not till I got older did that started to come out as a really important part of what I needed to do with my life. And so I decided to become a teacher. It seemed like something I was good at, something I loved to do, and a real chance to make some sort of transformative change in society. When I got there and became a teacher, I ended up getting a job in what NPR unfortunately calls the most dangerous school in America. It was on This American Life. And what I realized was I had an upbringing that faced a lot of challenges, but still, born and raised in the city, I didn't quite recognize the difference in experience, especially for so many of our young people that live in the city who are Black and brown, who are in communities that have been historically and systematically underinvested in. And so what that looked like was I was teaching a classroom full of young people, and I started to realize that like a lot of them did not understand a lot of the same things that I was sharing. So I was trying to connect Shakespeare and Macbeth to issues of right and wrong. I was using examples about you know going to a grocery store with your mom or going to a restaurant, all these things. And I quickly started to realize that I had young people who were 17, had never heard of Millennium Park. Kids who, when I described going to a grocery store with piles of fruit, uh, needed me to explain what those grocery stores were like. In fact, I remember a really funny conversation in which I explained to young people that how and why white people burn in the sun. (laughs) And that was pretty funny to me because, but it was funny conversation when you're having it. But then when you step back and you start thinking about this, you're like, okay, then you look at the research and WBEZ and NPR has documented the fact that there are young people in our society who are in segregated, isolated communities. They spend their entire career going to school never being in the classroom with someone who's different than themselves, whether it's racially or socioeconomically. And the impact that that might have on what they understand their places in the world, where they belong, what they're capable of, and who and what wants them. And I think what I the, the true thing that I, I came to understand was that my young people in the classrooms that I was teaching didn't understand how much the world wanted and needed them. Like how much our society needed to be around and to learn from from them and all that they have been through. And what I also started to realize was that your sense of where you belong and what you believe is possible for yourself has a huge impact on your outcomes and what you become and what you do with your life. And until our school systems started to focus as teachers, you know, myself, until I started to focus on how I start shaping the ideas that my young people have about the world around them, about 
where they belonged, about what the world had to offer them, about all the amazing places that they could go, all the places they could live, all the jobs they could have. Until I focused on that, I was doing them a major disservice just teaching from some books or just teaching to the test or trying to do what my school told me to do. And when I started to take young people on all these experiences to the University of Chicago, to restaurants, to plays, to theaters, we saw dramatic increases in attendance, grades, test scores. We started to have teachers from other schools asking us to give them the same access to those experiences. And students were all trying to get access to this. They wanted to be in it. They wanted to be able to to experience the world like some of the young people in my classroom were. And that was the origin story of Embark. It was, how do we give our young people the kind of experiences we know they deserve and that we know we need as well? How do we create an education system that prioritizes that, that uses data to prove that it creates powerful outcomes, and then trains and supports our teachers in being able to integrate this practice and how they teach? I mean, our educators know that this is what young people need. Our families do, our students do. And so it's a matter of how do we create an organization or create a support system that is able to infuse and and bring that into schools. That's Embark. Thank you. That's a hell of a story. And I knew the story and it still blew me away. Where do you start with this stuff? So you've got this these classrooms of kids who have this experience gap. You know, I've heard you refer to it as the experience gap, that they just have not had enough experiences to even be able to envision what their life could look like outside of a very narrow sliver. How did you approach building those experiences? Like, did you do some kind of an assessment to figure out what they needed? Or were you just like, anything's going to help here and let's go out into the city? Well, I think it began with me and a couple other teachers. Eventually, we brought two other schools on board where two other teachers were implementing. And we built and beta tested and built and beta tested and built and beta tested. So, for example, we would continuously start designing different experiences. And we thought about them in different buckets, more of like, as an educator, you have a good sense of what you're trying to teach young people and what they need to be successful in the classroom and what they need to be successful in life. You can imagine that when you think about your own young people or kids in your life or your cousins or your younger brothers and sisters, they need to know how to do stuff together, work on teams. They need to know how to collaborate really well on solving problems that might be hard or they don't know the answer to. They need to know how to like continuously fail and evolve and try again. They need to know how to like after something went well or something went bad, how you think about it and what you do with that information. They need to know about like, their own identity, about who they are, about who they want to be, about what they want to think about, about what matters to them. And then they need to think about how they continuously take everything that they learn in their life and see in the world and translate that into some sort of continuum of understanding about the world. So the thing about experiences is it's the doing, but it's also the reflecting. The reflecting part and creating a really important structure around how you think about the experiences you have is as critical to the experience itself. And in that way, positive and negative experiences in some ways can start being used as as learning experiences. I mean, I'm not saying anything that people don't know. This is how, how we live. This is what humans are like. So when we were thinking about making these experiences, it was like, okay, so all of our experiences should be the kind of thing that expand a person's understanding of who they are and where they belong, uh, give them a sense of interacting with new things and new places, gives them an opportunity to not just go to a place and be a passive observer, but to be bringing something or sharing their story or adding something or building something actively. And then we thought a lot about like what might be the kind of spaces where you could go So you're talking about restaurants, theaters, universities, civic organizations, community organizations. And then you thought about what could they be doing? They could be building stuff. They could be doing things to support the community. They could be doing things to support other young people, their peers. They could be doing things like we do now where young people work with adults with disabilities or they'll support the homeless or they'll create projects to make the world better. But They're also glass blowing or they're building circuit boards or they're designing Facebook filters or Instagram filters. And so 
when we started the design, it was all about the place and what they did there. So one of my favorite journeys is going to Chopping Block, which is a uh, a place in Chicago that teaches you how to cook. I know a lot of people, and I'm sure you do, Obi, who, who really need to learn how to cook. But <laughs> guilty. <laughs> I don't want to say anything, but yeah. uh, <laughs> but you go over there, and you could just have you're sitting with a group of people in your classroom and your teachers. And you're learning to make chicken enchiladas or something. Everybody goes to different stations. They start building it. But where the science gets special is right before they start to practice, the instructors will typically go like, we're about to do these things. There's the chili chopping section. There's this section. There's that section. Someone's going to do the onions. They do the whole sections. But when you're an educator and you're designing learning experiences, you stop and you go, all right. What are the kind of things we're looking for in ourselves and in classmates when we're engaging with this new experience? And, you know, people will raise their hand. They're like, we're looking for people who are willing to try new things, who aren't afraid. We're looking for people who are supportive and, and like really shouting each other out and giving encouragement. You know, we're looking for people who are really listening and engaging when other people are talking. You're like almost priming the values. Exactly. You prime, you initiate the next action, which is, okay, begin. Then you stop and you get you say, all right, shout out some of your classmates, shout out some of the people, the adults who's showing up with the values that we just saw. And they shout each other out. And then you shout a couple of people out. Then they engage again. And then you wait till the, the entire experience is done and they're sitting down and then you reflect, okay, what did we see? What did we learn? Who was really showing up and showing the values? Who was reluctant but then changed? What does this whole process mean for how we learn? and how we see ourselves in the world. It's, a, I think, a process of basically how to raise a human that almost anyone could use. Yeah. I mean, that applies to any scenario where you're trying to teach anybody anything, right? And that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because there are base principles that apply across different disciplines and different parts of life. And I think there's so much in what you're doing that's just like foundationally human. Like, this is how humans learn. This is how humans grow. This is how humans connect. You know, you're doing it in a sort of in a scientific way because you've got this little petri dish of, you know, high school students in a classroom, but it, it applies just as much to a corporate training room or parenting your children or anything like that. And so I was going to ask you, like, what makes a good experience? Is there anything outside of what you just shared that that's additional to what makes a great experience? Like, do you do anything upfront before you even get to the room? Is there anything after they leave the room or leave the experience? What's the full scope of making a lasting educational experience? I think you're absolutely right, Obi. This is so applicable to basically everything when it comes to wanting to train your staff or raise your kids or even have yourself a good time. You can think about some of the, the best times you got to watch a movie. Um, usually it's about, you know, you're enjoying that film, but afterwards, what does it mean? What did you see? How was that? Like you're discussing part of it. It's all part of that reflection piece that you know that's the person you want to hang out with when you go watch that movie because you got to have that conversation afterwards. And so I think when you think about building meaningful experiences, there's a couple things that I could just give as, as hints. We sort of really documented this into a design process of how you go through the entire the entire thing. But giving thought to what it is you want to get out of something or the questions you want to answer is a really important thing. If you're going to take your kid to a play or to a museum or to any type of experience, especially one that you think maybe they're not that enthusiastic about at first, you want to think about how you're going to frame something. What are some things we could possibly get out of this thing? And what are some lessons we're kind of looking to think about? So, you know, there's a difference about going to a art museum, going to the Art Institute, and one, you could go to the Art Institute and have a docent show you around. Valuable, really valuable. But you could also have your kid or yourself or whoever you're taking to the Art Institute, get online, look at some of the pieces ahead of time on their online collection, pick out a, three things they think is super cool or interesting, at least that they would want to see when they got there. 
And then when you get to the museum, you hand them the map and you say, all right, let's go see those pieces. Take me to the pieces you like and show me what you like about it. It could be as simple as I like the color. I like the shape. I like how it looks. But now you've got a change of how that experience is happening. So that's the second principle is who's doing what in this experience. You can have a passive experience like going to a theater and a play, also very valuable. But afterwards, then the action needs to take place. Who's doing what and when? So always thinking about the frame, the intention, who's doing what, when, and then afterwards, or sometimes in between, thinking about how you reflect on the experience. What happened? Is it going like you want it to be going? Or what are the things you're seeing? Or what are the cool parts of this thing? Or what did you notice? Very simple. That's uh, the action, reflection, action, reflection, action, reflection cycle that you can do in any sort of experience. I think a couple principles to remember are about power dynamics. When you are adults or you are mentors or you're the boss or the trainer and you've got the trainees or you've got the students or you got your kids, you need to really think about who has the power in this experience and when do, how do you create a level playing field? So anybody who's a trainee should feel like they're almost speaking as much, if not more, than the trainer. When you're doing this really well, the trainee is at 80% and the trainer is at 20 and sometimes even less. I remember being a teacher and when I finally got really good, it was when I only spoke in the beginning, I only spoke in the middle, and I only spoke a little at the end and no time for more than three minutes. And the rest of the class ran itself. What tips do you have for that? Because that sounds great. But it can be hard. One, it can be hard to let go of the microphone. And two, like especially like in a business setting where, you know, maybe it's a sales presentation or something like that. Like it can be hard to really facilitate that kind of conversation without continuing to have to jump in and guide it and maybe correct somebody or say the thing. Like what are the best practices for fostering that kind of environment, that kind of learning environment? When you talk for those three minutes, it's about being really smart and how to leverage that. So think about if you want to get people to learn how to design really nice field trips or experiences, you could sit up there and explain to them all the foundational components of it and how the science works and all those pieces. But up front, you might want to create real world context. So you could say, all right, everyone, we're going to work on creating some amazing experiences for your family. We're going to brainstorm some places Then we're going to start thinking about how to construct that experience. We're going to follow these simple rules on the wall. You guys are going to get into a group. We're going to design. And then we're going to stop. Once we stop, we'll reflect on what you built and then what the science says. Then we'll do it again. So at that point, you're only speaking two times. One, to set it up, give them some directions, have them work on it. They're building, they're thinking, they're trying to construct it. Now, all of a sudden, you haven't given them the answers necessarily You've given them the guide steps in the beginning. Now they want to know if they're right or wrong. Did they do it right? Did they do it well? Did they not do it well? It's a human nature thing to want to know. Then you say, all right, here are some of the best principles about it. And then you start looking in, you show them some of the research. Now it matters to them. Now how they designed it matters. So then you give them a chance to retweak everything and come out with some better ones. Everyone leaves having produced some things, having put their brain through the entire thought process. They've tried something, they've learned something new, they've tried something, they've tried to apply it, then they've adjusted it, they've augmented it, and then they redid it again. It is like the engineering cycle. What does this look like with your team at Embark? Like, do you have an example of how you've used this to manage your own team? Yeah, we do this constantly. So internally for us, all of our training, all of our teacher training, how we design principles, how we build things internally is all very much like this. So for example, for us, having a continuous learning environment is really critical. So there's a lot of research continuously coming out. For example, for a long time, we were doing experiential learning and integrating experiences and relationship training into how schools function. And we did it primarily to increase outcomes, grades, test scores, attendance, 
as more and more research started to come out over the last decade, what we started to understand was a lot about traumatic experiences that people face and the insane correlations and connections between the number of adverse childhood experiences you've had to mental health, trauma, violence, all these outcomes. It was almost across the board. It was more socioeconomic than it was racial. And it just showed that society in general, the more traumatic experiences you face, the more issues you're going you're gonna to have in the end. And I think we need to continuously understand that because not only is the work we do changing outcomes, but it's also transforming a lot of negative potential issues and addressing childhood trauma. So one of the things that research is showing us is about positive childhood experiences that they can counteract and reverse. However, Embark is on the field. We're consistently supporting hundreds of teachers and thousands of students. My team needs to know the latest of all of this information. But we could sit around and have everybody read a bunch of research papers. But instead, what we do is we'll do things like at Embark, they'll take one of our head people who's leading that, we'll take sections of the document, break them up, hand out different sections. They're like a paragraph or two paragraphs, hand them off to different teammates. They then pair up and share what they're reading, what it means, make connections. Then they come back, put those pieces back together, grab two more paragraphs, go break out, read those, connect them again and come back. And now the entire table is having, a, you know, our 25, 30 adults are able to then share what they're reading and talk about how it applies to what they already know and how it connects to what they existing know. Then we're able to say, look, this is where the rest of the research is. Everyone's able to compile all of that information in a much faster way, not having to read the entire document, but now listening to peers, working together, having to be responsible for each section. And then at the end, you collectively reflect on what does that mean for our practice? And if anybody else wants to read further, they can read that document. So that's one example of how we integrate that information. Whenever we want to build new experiences or we want to build new models or we have to solve new problems, we start by putting all that stuff up a bunch of ideas up on the board, and there's a lot of time doing and then sharing out with what we're working on. And so we follow a very similar process ourselves. It sounds like there's a lot of collaborative time versus individual work time. I was watching Inside Pixar. Have you seen that at all? No. So we have Disney Plus. We got two young kids now, so we get Disney Plus. And so you get all the Disney, all the Pixar, everything. And there's this documentary series hidden in there called Inside Pixar. And it's all these 12 to 15 minute mini documentaries that follow either different people who work at Pixar or different parts of the movie creation process. And the one thing it's fascinating for anybody who's interested in anything creative. It's it's amazing to watch how these people work. But the one thing that struck me is the massive amount of collaboration and feedback and iteration that happens to make any one movie. Like they say in there a couple of times, the average animator who works on one of those movies works on somewhere between 90 and 120 seconds of the movie. And you got to think of like how long these movies are and think about how many people that is. And then they're always testing. And, and there's somebody whose job is just to create the music track that gets put in while they're sampling it, knowing that none of the music is going to stay in the movie. Like everything that they do gets taken away. And yet that's like such a critical part of the the process. Long story short to say, like when you're talking, I've been thinking about that because I've just been thinking about like, if you really want to make something good and you really want to make it impactful and last, like the more insight you can get and the more hands you can get on it, I just think the better the product's going to be. Absolutely. And I want to say that I don't think individual time is wrong. I think it's also a critical part of the entire story. So for example, if my team is designing new field experiences for young people, they'll all go and bring, they'll design a bunch of them and they'll bring one to the table and everyone will sit around and that team will sit around and lay that experience on the table and everybody gets a chance to throw arrows at it, to add on to it, to tweak it, to give their thought process on it. It's very much like what you're just describing. It's a simple process where you could take time separately 
to design something and then you put it on the cutting floor or the editing floor for iteration. Yeah. You get feedback on it. Yeah. You get feedback. And, you know, for us, when we bring new staff on, we have to be extremely clear to them that Embark functions in a way where there's a lot of candor and a lot of care, but anything you make anytime is open for feedback and restructuring. And that's basically going to be your nature. So the team knows when they make something, other people are going to see it and other people are going to say things about it and they're going to be able to design it. But the nature is so collaborative and caring that you expect to get feedback and comments from other people. And if you don't, it's as if they didn't really care about what you were making. But when you've built that kind of culture, it doesn't become criticism. It becomes love. Yeah. It's like the coach who says, it's it's not that I'm criticizing you that you need to worry about. It's when I stop criticizing you that you need to exactly. worry. Exactly. Yeah. How do you go about choosing the people to be on your team? What do you look for in the people you surround yourself with? One of the things uh, Embark hears from every single person we hire is the funny stories about how long and involved and creative our hiring processes. So for us, it's really important to be able to bring people who are very self-motivated, but also love to work in a communal environment and who are high performers, but totally open to feedback and this sort of collaborative work environment. So we have a five-stage hiring process and almost always involves a work sample and a panel hiring process in between there. And so I think we've been very blessed to be able to find really good people. But I remember I'll tell you this funny story about a guy who works at Bain. You know, He gets paid a half a million dollars or something like that. And he wanted to come and do an externship with Embark. Basically, here's a half a million Bain guy who's like a partner at Bain, wants to come work for Embark for free for three months. And he's like, and Imran put me through five interviews before he said yes. It's all just part of the practice because for us, it's really critical to have the right people and because of the time that's about to be invested with them and the time they're going to have with the team. So we spend a lot of time up front finding those people who have the qualities like the ones that we want to teach our young people. They're collaborative, they're open, they're driven, they're designing really They're willing to work independently, but love to collaborate and have a lot of feedback. Let me ask you about that Bain example, because I mean, I think the reason you tell that is because most people would be like, oh, wow, I'm running this nonprofit. I don't have that much money. This really expensive person wants to come in. Like, yeah, come on in. Like, and you just open the door and welcome them in. Whereas you, you know, you're like, hold on, we'll let you in, but you got to go through a few gates first. We got to check you. Where does that come from? Because that, that I would imagine to a lot of people feels really uncomfortable. Feels like, who am I to slow this process down? Who am I to look this gift horse in the mouth? Like, where does it come from that that gives you the confidence to, to say, you know what, slow down, this is our process. And even though this thing may look great, we're still going to be true to who we are and follow the process. Like, how, where does that come from? I think it comes from values. I think we have a value and a deep belief that the work we do for the people we do it is some of the most important in the world. It is some of the most important and most valuable work that you could potentially do. So whether you're getting paid a million, a billion dollars, whatever, that does not make a difference because what makes a difference is, do you have the capacity and the talent and the right stuff that we need for our young people? Because this work, you know what? Whatever you're doing at Bain, you know, analysis for whatever chances are, it's not nearly as important as the work that we're doing to help the young people in our city or or across our country and and to help them in the education system. It's a matter of values, I think, Obi, like knowing that the work we do is so critical and so important that who we bring around our kids, who we bring around the work is very, very important. And it's an opportunity for them. So I've got one more question on on the people here. And I've told this story all the time because if folks haven't heard, 
you know, the way that you and I know each other is I was a volunteer for Embark. And for a number of years, I chaired uh, your auxiliary board. And I tell the story of how that came to be a lot because I find it kind of funny. You know, you and I had had conversations where you said, hey, we're going to do this. We're thinking about doing this board thing, this auxiliary board thing. And I think you had that conversation with a number of different people who were sort of the high frequency, frequent flyers of the organization. And I was like, yeah, that's great. And then you called me and you said, hey, we're going to do this thing. Do you want to be a part of it? I said, yeah, I'd love to be a part of it. You said, great, because you're going to run it. And I was like, uh, sure. Okay. Let's talk about that. And I remember saying, just to be clear, I've never done this before. And you said, yeah, neither have we. We'll figure it out. And I remember we sat in your office and we put it all up on the whiteboard and we like figured it all out. But like, that's a lot of trust to put in somebody to build something when I didn't have that experience. And I'm not looking for you to pat me on the back. I'm more curious. I want to tell that story just to ask you the question, like, how do you think about trust in the people that you surround yourself with? Like, are you like, do you just do that screening so that you can bring them in and trust them and let them go? Or do you like build trust over time? Like, how do you trust and empower the people around you to do the things you need them to do? I think there's a couple of answers to that question, but I love that story too, Obi, because <laughs> <laughs> you did a really phenomenal job at it. And I think Part of it is you do do that screening when you're hiring people because there is going to be so much trust and because you're going to let them go. and But you're also going to continuously support them and they're going to be learning in sort of a living organism that is your organization. That is why we call it sort of it's like organism, organization thing. It's a living entity and it's learning and moving and growing together. And at a certain point, I am not talking to everybody on my team constantly. I'm not the one hiring them, but I've built an organization with some amazing leaders who together we've built the structure so that the organization is supporting itself, is training and healing and building and learning from one another and continuously being able to sort of have a thriving ecosystem internally. But yeah, you got to have trust in the people you hire. But I'll also say it comes to the same thing for me is about values and principles. So you can meet a person and the idea that people don't know how to learn things is wrong. If they have the right kind of drive, commitment to something, the values to work and ethics like, like you did, I had no problem that you didn't have any experience running uh, an auxiliary board. And in fact, I actually thought that maybe not having experience is an ad- advantage in many ways because current existing systems, we ended up building one of the most successful ones. I remember you were at one of these board presentations where University of Chicago brings, brings boards from all around the city, and you were asked to present on having one of the most highly successful and effective auxiliary boards. And that is because one, we trust in the values a person has rather than the skills or the know-how they have. And then not knowing how to do it from the past means you get to build it from a different way in the future. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that sort of naivete too, because to your point on that story about being at that event, you know, we went to learn from other auxiliary boards. They pulled together like all kinds of different auxiliary board and board leaders. And I remember sitting at the lunch with all the auxiliary people and we were talking about the different types of things we were doing. And everybody was saying, oh yeah, you know, we do this event and we raised $10,000 or we did this event and we raised $7,000. And we said, oh, well, we, you know, we did this big event and we raised, I think at the time it was like $300,000. And everybody was like, what, how do you do that? And it was like, I, I didn't know we weren't supposed to. And, <laughs> you know, you had, the way that it worked was you had been, running the Variety Spectacular, which is what it was called, still is called. It was one of the big fundraisers. I think the year before we took it over, it had made $25,000, which is a great event in and of itself. And you had said, hey, I can't do this anymore. You all get in a room, O'Brien and and my counterpart, Renee, give a shout out to Renee, you know, kind of let it and go see what you can do. And that next year we raised $125,000. And the year after that, we doubled it. And the year after that, we were over 300. And before the the last year before the pandemic, it was over half a million. 
over half a million dollars. And so it was just like, we just like, didn't know any better. And I, I don't know that I have a question here other than just to say, like, I, I agree with you that I think there is a power to not knowing any better to just saying like, okay, what's our, what's the audacious goal here? What are the values we're doing? What's the mission? And let's just go try to do it at the best capacity that we can and not put some self-limiting beliefs on top of it. You know, I think you touched on something that's been a big part of why Embark as an organization is so lauded and respected in the Chicago education world, but also for a lot of our work across the country. And I think one of them has to do with audacity. And the way I like to think about that is we for so long constantly are thinking about how to create change, whether in our society or our systems or our lives or our organizations from a point of where are we now? What are our assets? What do we do with them? Right? How do we build from here? But Embark has spent a long time and brought many leaders and people together, including parents and teachers, to think about what is our ideal scenario? How can you sort of liberate yourself to imagine your best case scenario, the world you want to live in, the way the school is functioning, how humans are interacting across society? What relationship can the school system have with the community they're in and the communities around them? How might that shape the world? And what would that look like? What would that feel like? And then free yourself from the entire process of saying, but what if, how about, but you can't free yourself entirely from that and just envision the ideal end state, then begin to say, we've already accomplished it. Let's imagine what did we do to get there? What roadblocks did we get out of our way and how did we do it? What resources did we need? Who did we need? You start imagining that you've already accomplished something and then work backwards from there and say, how did we do that? And then you get to a whole roadmap of where you are. And then you link where you are now to where you need to get to. And that allows you to have a much broader perspective on your goals, on uh, what you can accomplish, on what your organization needs to be able to do, on the competencies that it needs, on its overall strategy. And you can really understand what your effect is going to be on the society or the systems around you. So what is your big audacious goal for Embark? Well, I believe that we can create a thriving, cohesive society in which we are starting to dissolve the borders across race and socioeconomic status, across income. And I think one of the key levers to be able to to build equity in our society is to understand that our school systems basically educate 90% of our population. 90% of the human population in the United States goes to the school system. And if you can create a school system that is not just shaping learning so that young people are learning outside of the classroom in conjunction with people to change their outcomes, but you're thinking about if that 90% of humans are interacting with the rest of society, continuously for their entire school career, they're going to dramatically change how they see themselves, their place in the world, and why they want to learn and what they want to do, their motivation, their understanding, but so will the rest of our society. So for me, it is how do we turn our education system into one of the largest engines to fight against racial disparity, bigotry, bias, and to start creating a much more cohesive world that we live in? That's it. (laughs) I love that. You know, and I want to flip that too, because you talk about building that vision through the students that are coming through the program. But I've seen in one of the foundational elements of Embark is called the community social. And it's where you bring generally 20 to 25 students into a room with 20 to 25 adults and you sit down and it's a time for the students to interact with the adults from different walks of life. It's almost like there's like icebreakers. It's like speed dating. It's like, you know, kind of getting to know a little bit about the person, their motivations, their background, all of that. And their life and it's, yeah, And their life story. And it's always meant to help the students and sort of show them different perspectives. But I've done more than a dozen of them. And every single time, I think the adults have a bigger 
walk away being more impacted. I think the the exposure for them to these kids from neighborhoods that they may have written off in the past or have different biases against or stereotypes of, like meet these kids and are so blown away that it changes their perspective and they walk out different. To address the adult population out there who's through the school system and won't have the chance, like what are the experiences or what are the ways that they can gain experiences to bring down some of the barriers or maybe open up portions of the world that they're not experiencing? Yeah. So when I think about the vision of our work, I think it addresses that issue. And the lesson you're talking about is is one of the most revelatory pieces of what we've learned. And I think what you've learned as well interacting with this work is that it's not just our young people that need to learn things, that need to be connected, that need to be exposed. It's the rest of our world that needs them as much as they need the rest of the world. And we have so much more to gain from having a world in which we are able to integrate with and and learn from people who have been dealing with that adversity and who have overcome them, whose life experiences are different than ours. We, We have so much to gain from that. And I hear it time and time again from so many leaders, from like the CEO of Leo Burnett to the community organizer who's working in in the neighborhood about how much they're taking from their time with young people. But I think on the broader question you asked is, you know, it's interesting about what the research says. If you want to deal with racial disparity, if you want to deal with implicit bias, that the trainings and the programs in which you sit in a conference room and learn about it, and learn about white privilege or any of these things, are not necessarily effective. And the reason that research shows us is that some of those things are not really effective is because our stereotypes, our biases are deeply contextual. It is reflective and constantly reinforced by the worlds we live in, by the way we see the world already, and the people we're continuously around. The only way to really address bias based on a lot of the research and what psychology and all that stuff says is through repeated experiences to the contrary. That is the only way to start really truly dismantling biases that we have, especially those that we are unaware we have. And that's where the danger truly is, is the implicit biases that we carry with us, we're not aware of. And yet, the only way to do anything about it is to have real world experiences to the contrary. Not once, not twice, but you need to build a system in which you are able to regularly have those contrarian experiences. And that makes you think, if you're a leader on the movement for racial justice, if you're a corporate leader who's trying to think about equity and racial disparity, if you are a parent, then the question isn't, how do I talk to my kids about this only, or how do we discuss this? It is, how do you create an environment in which the person you're working with is able to have continuous experiences that show them different? And odds are part of that is going to be sharing that experience with them. Not just how do we create this experience for them, but how do we together go share an experience? Because there's there's probably just as much growth that needs to happen with the adults as with the kids. I can say that from personal experience. Imran, this is fantastic. I mean, this has been even better than I thought it was going to be. And I had very high hopes for this conversation. Where can people find out more about Embark, donate to Embark, get engaged with Embark? How can people support your work? So this next fall, due to COVID and the pandemic, the interest and need for our work to be able to turn schools into places where young people want to come and they want to continue coming and they want to stay, a school where they have strong relationships with their peers and with the teachers around them, and they're learning things that really make a difference and having the kind of experiences outside of the classroom that make them really want to be engaged in school. In order to do that, we are doubling the number of students we serve. We're going to be serving over 4,000 young people this coming fall. There's a lot more demand than the capacity we have, especially financially. So those dollars that anyone's able to contribute make a huge difference in our ability to be able to serve those young people. And they can go to www.embarcembarkchicago.org to learn more about our work and to contribute. 
Awesome. And then what about journey partners? Continuously, it matters to us that when you go from serving uh, to doubling your students, and next year we plan on doubling again because of so much demand, the number of doors that we can have opened for us of partners who are saying, yes, we'd like to welcome your young people. And we'd also like to think creatively about how to make a meaningful experience. We are continuously looking for corporate and business partners to open their doors and to welcome our young people. And I think based on what you said, it's an important lesson for everyone to realize. It's not just for the young people. In many ways, it's really transformative for the adults who are participating. Yeah. And I was thinking as you were talking, with the amount of corporate focus right now on diversity, equity, and inclusion, implicit bias, all of that, like this is a great way to actually build that into the fabric of your organization and, and actually change people's thoughts and behaviors. Um, I know we've done a number of community socials at Lockton and similarly, every all the adults walk away blown away and, and really impacted by that time and, and that interaction. You know, it's only an hour and a half. So I would encourage anybody listening to this, if any of this has resonated with you, if you have the opportunity to support financially, great. If you don't, but have the opportunity to support by having the conversation about what a journey might look like, I would encourage you to do that. Embark is very near and dear to my heart. And I've seen the impact that this has had on the individuals and the students. And it's pretty incredible. So Imran, thank you for the work you're doing. And, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.